So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Genesis, and we'll start at chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles in front of you in the pews. There's a hardcover one you can use, and if you don't have a Bible at all, there's a paperback one you can take home with you if you want to. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start reading at verse 26. So before we do that, let me just give you a warning. This is another sermon in our Integrating Faith and Life series. So because of that, it is on a topic. And so in order to approach the topic biblically and accurately, there will be lots of turning of pages in your Bible, or I will be saying a lot of things other than Genesis 1. So if you can follow with me, please do so. If not, I will read them slowly and nicely so you can hear and understand what's happening. So for each main point today, there will be a different primary text, and we'll go through other texts as we go along as necessary. So imagine for a moment that instead of me standing here, instead of this pulpit and all these microphones and these guitar equipment, that this stage is completely empty. The lights are dim, the mood's been set, there's strobe lights, there's a fire machine on the edge of the stage, and the theme from Rocky is playing, along with other songs that are meant to get you amped and excited about what's about to happen. So all of a sudden, a group of large, muscular, incredible Hulk-looking guys walk out from behind these red curtains, and they come to the stage. And you begin to wonder what in the world is happening. So what happens is, these guys have shirts on that say power, and, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and, and all stuff like that. And they come out, and they begin to perform these feats of power. They're breaking baseball bats over their legs. They're running through blocks of ice. They're tearing phone books in half. They're breaking steel and doing all manner of things that you thought was not humanly possible. They're deadlifting refrigerators. They're just doing it all. It's basically the world's strongest man competition brought to a church near you. And so after they finish breaking stuff and screaming and grunting, they do their version of a gospel presentation. Of course, it has themes of God's strength, and how he can strengthen you through faith. And this is bizarre to you. This, this makes no sense, and it's bizarre to me, but in fact, it is a real thing. It was a group formed that was very popular in the 80s called the Power Team. And they would go to churches and break stuff, and they share the gospel at the end, because they were these big, muscular guys. And they still do it today, actually, because I checked online. <laughs> and watched the YouTube videos. So... <laughs> So these guys, you have to sit back and ask yourself, what in the world is going on with this? So what happened with the power team is a guy named John Jacobs started it. He was a bodybuilder, but he's also a Christian, professing Christian. He wanted to share the gospel. So as such, he had a prison ministry he went to. He preached sermons at the prison. Didn't get too much traction there. So at his next sermon, he decided to use a trick his friend taught him. He's preaching about God breaking chains of your life or captivity or something like that. And so what he did is he had some handcuffs on. He decided to break them while he was preaching as his illustration. I'm not going to do that, by the way. And so when he did this, he got a lot more interest than usual. People began to come and hear him that never came before. Now, while I'm not affirming his methodology, of course, or I'm not affirming his theology, I am saying that Jacob's actually wrestled with an idea or something that most of us tend to ignore. What is that idea? That idea is 
how do we think about our faith in relation to our work? Here you have a big bodybuilder guy who bodybuilds, and he says he's a Christian. How do you put those things together? It's an important question for us if we want to follow Christ faithfully. Do these things stay separate? Do I go to work, you know, and then do the God thing afterwards? Or do we put them together somehow? Is my work pleasing to God if it's just regular work, if I'm just bodybuilding, if I just work at Target or something? Does God care about that? Or is that not pleasing to God? So at the root of this question is what's called the sacred-secular divide. See, there are some who feel that work that is sacred or spiritual, such as you know, being a pastor or being a missionary, is good work, and that work is pleasing to God. But others feel like regular work, as we would say, regular things, you know, the gardener, the teacher, so on and so forth, isn't pleasing to God. So the question is, does God care what I do with my time? Does he care how I work or what I do? So today we're going to approach this question because we have to answer this question if you want to follow Christ faithfully. And so the predominant views right now mostly are on one extreme or the other. You see, there's a first group of people who think that everybody should basically quit their jobs and just preach the gospel full time. They think that your work is not pleasing to God or it's not important unless you're doing something inherently spiritual. Yet there are others who would say, my work and my God should not separate. You know, my job's over here, I go to work, I work, I leave work, and then God's over here, and I can be a Christian at that time. So God doesn't care about my work, and when I'm working, I don't care about God. Or is the middle ground the truth? Do we do something weird like Jacob's and mix the two together and hope everything turns out okay? Do I add a gospel presentation to the end of my chemistry class? Is that appropriate? So how do we think about merging our faith with our work? So that's what we'll talk about today. And so what I hope to do today is to clarify this issue for us. I want to present a biblical view of vocation or work, and hopefully what we see from Scripture is that work is from God and is for His glory. So I'll be saying work a lot today. Of course, the title is vocation, but vocation is not really used as commonly today as it has been in the past. But traditionally speaking, vocation is this thought of a calling to a certain task by God. So sometimes we feel compelled to pursue a certain area because we have interest and a real desire, and we would say that's the calling. But other times we have passions and we have skills, and life just happens and we end up somewhere. And also other times, sometimes it's completely random, and we end up doing something we thought we would never do. But in the end, because God is sovereign, where you are is where you are called to. This includes your work and everything else, whether you're a husband or your wife or your parent. Where you are is where God has called you to. So when we think about work, think about that context. And so just for a note, work is not the same as employment. You can be unemployed and still work. Work has to do with what you are doing. See, all parents work because they're raising their children. All spouses work because they have responsibilities to go with their spouse. Students in school work because you have stuff to do. So you don't have to have a job to say that you are working. Retired people work, and so on and so forth. So this sermon is really for everybody. It's not just for people that have careers. It's for people that work, and that is all of us in here today. So with that... Let's look at the passage now. Genesis chapter 1, 
and we'll start at verse 26. And we'll start by looking at God's design for work so we can think rightly about what work really is. So Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And actually, let's skip on down to verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed." All right, long passage, but let's be done. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about God's design for work from this passage. So we take, talk about God's design for work. Where we want to begin is with God himself. And so you do not have to look very far in the Bible to understand, to find work. Work is everywhere in the Bible. In fact, it's in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first thing the Bible tells us about God is that he's a worker. Before we get a clear picture of his grace and his love and his mercy or his holiness, we present it with the fact that God is active and working. We see him create the world out of nothing, and you see his creative work takes six days. At the end of each day, he says it is good, and it climaxes on the sixth day with the creation of man, which he says is very good. So just from the first chapter of the Bible, we can see that working is a part of God's nature and that God is at work. Now, if I were to ask you right now, what is God's job, or what kind of work does God do, what would you say? I can imagine that after thinking about it for a few moments, you realize it's more than one answer. In fact, everybody in this room could have a different answer because there are so many things that God does. So we see God's creative work in Genesis, but we know that there are other things that he does as well. So this, we'll just look at this passage and point some things here to establish that God is, in fact, a worker. If we look at chapter 2, verse 7, we can see very clearly that God's working. He says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So here we see God as a life giver. God gives life to his creation. 
See, he created the man from the dust of the ground, but he did not become a living creature until God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. So likewise, God gave life to all the plants, to all the animals, and so on and so forth. So we see a unique task, a unique responsibility that God has to give life to his creation. What else do we see in this passage? We see that God gives order to all things. If we think about Genesis chapter 1, God does not only make stuff, but he gives it order. He puts it in, in sequences. So in chapter 1, verse 11, he plants trees that are going to yield seed and seed that yields fruit. This is order. He establishes how the plants are going to grow, how things are going to reproduce in that way. So new plants will be grown through birth and seeds. So God establishes an order and a pathway. In verse 14, he says he creates day and night and declares the sun and the moon and the stars were used for signs and signals and days and years. So he creates an order of days, of years, based on the star and based on the sun and the moon. In chapter 2, verse 3, God institutes a day of rest, the seventh day, making a pattern there, a pattern of work and rest. So he's making sequences, and we've seen that God is ordering his creation. He has not simply created and then walk away. He creates it, and then he orders things so that it can sustain itself and continue to flourish. What we also see is that God is a provider. We know this inherently, but it's here in the passage as well. If we think about chapter 1, verse 29, he says that the plants that have previously been created for food for creation. So he provides food for creation by creating plants. He makes not only man, but he makes things for man to eat, to survive. In chapter 2, verse 6, God's talking about the rain. The rain had not yet come, but a mist came from the ground to water the land. So God provides for the land to be watered and nourished so it can grow. In verses 18 to 24, we see God identified man's need for a companion. He creates Eve then. So we see God providing in that way as well. He provides a spouse for, for Adam. So he provides both spiritual and physical needs for his creation. And this all shows us that God is a provider overall. And these are just three examples from this passage, but if we think about it, we know that God does much, much, much more than this. This is why Jesus says in John 5, 17, my father is working until now. His point is, since the beginning, God has been working and he continues to work. God is always doing something. He's, not, he's never just passive, just sitting there watching the world spin. He sustains the world. He provides for the world. He gives grace. So God is active in the world. So this is important for us to understand that God works if we're to think about how we are to think about our own work. So let's consider what impact this has on creation. Look at me at chapter 1, verse 17 again. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and a female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So being created in the image of God does not mean we look like God physically, because obviously God is a spirit. We don't know what he looks like. But what it's meant to say for us is we share some of the characteristics and attributes of God because we are created in his image. We resemble him in ways. So for today's focus, that has to do with working. Because God works and we're created in the image of God, there's something inherent about people by which we all desire to work and we all can work. 
You see, God, by creating man, invites them to take part in what he is doing. He invites them to take part in his work that he's been doing. So not because God needed man, because he did not need man, but out of his goodness and his mercy, he creates them to join him. So of all the creatures made, in the text we read, man is the only one said to be in the image of God. So it should be no surprise then that man's the only one that are given commands or a job description here. Man is created and told what to do. No one else is. They're just told to grow and multiply. But man's given specific responsibilities or tasks to do. And this reflects the image that man is to work as God works. So they're to be fruitful and multiply. We saw that. They're to fill and subdue the earth. They're to exercise dominion over creation. Let's look at these in turn and see what that actually means. So the first thing he calls them to do is be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth. See, be fruitful and multiply is straightforward for us. We know what that means. That means procreate. That means have children. This was very important for the first man. There's just two of them. If God wanted humanity to come, they had to have kids. It was mandatory for them in their context. And so if you think about them having kids, what are they actually doing? They are filling the earth. They are reproducing. They are, in a sense, creating life. Not in the sense that God does it out of nothing, but they are creating life in a way that God designed them to create life. So in a sense, by reproducing and filling the earth, they are joining God in his creative work to a certain degree. And so this is not just about having kids. It's not a command just to have kids, but it's also about the world itself. It's a call to fill and subdue the earth. This is what many theologians call the cultural mandate. They say the word subdue means to bring under control, especially by exertion of the will. So the idea is that God created the earth and he created the earth good, but the earth has within itself some untapped potential of which man needs to come in and cultivate and cause to grow and flourish and so on and so forth. So God created the earth in Genesis 1. It said it was void and formless, but then God cultivated the earth and made other things. So likewise, God calls men to take the earth he's created and cultivate it and make things as well. This is him having dominion. This is him filling and subduing the earth. So he exercises authority here. It's his responsibility to be his caretaker and his tamer. And so subduing and overseeing creation make work a necessary part of man's call or vocation. See, when man does this, he honors God and reflects his image and therefore brings him glory. Now notice these tasks, though. None of these tasks that God asks these men to do, they can do on their own. They're all dependent on God for these tasks. They cannot be fruitful and multiply if God had not made their bodies to do so. So truly God is responsible for that. They cannot fill and subdue the earth if God had not made the earth in the first place or given them the mental and intellectual capability to do so. They cannot exercise dominion over creation if God had not given them the authority in the first place. And so the work of men when rightly understood, is always done in dependence and submission to God. So before man was created, it was God that was filling the earth through creation. It was God that was exercising dominion. But once he created man, he caused them to join in those tasks, but only in submission to him. So work then is an opportunity for men to join God in this work through submission. So how does understanding these, these foundations of work affect our daily lives? Like how do we apply this practically? Let's talk about a few ways that we can apply this. 
first, we have to acknowledge that all work has dignity because it reflects God's image. Because God's a worker, when we work in obedience and submission to God, our work is meaningful. So as we work, we are image bearers of God. So from this vantage point, we should not shun certain professions or lines of work as long as they're in line with God because they have dignity because we are working and reflect God's image. So it doesn't matter what the job title is or what the salary is per se, it matters that we are working in faithfulness and submission to God. Now, obviously, this excludes some jobs. There are some jobs that inherently are opposed to God. In Ephesians, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so he has something to share with anyone in need. So you can't be a thief. You can't be a professional bank robber if you want to live in submission to God. So there are some jobs that are inherently wrong and that cannot be used to honor God because the job requires sin. It requires you to be opposed to God. But any job that is in line with God's commands is honoring to God and it has dignity because it reflects his image as we are working. So you don't have to go into full-time ministry to do this. You can be an artist or you can be a poet. You can be a marine biologist, a teacher, a farmer, so on and so forth. You can do a number of things and work diligently to honor God and reflect his image. And so all these tasks, when we think about it, fulfill the cultural mandate of God by filling, cultivating, and subduing the earth and exercising dominion. And so because there's this dignity in work, we should encourage others to pursue their passion. We should encourage others to work. And we should speak about work in a positive fashion. The second thing that we should take from this is we must affirm that work is good. God calls his creation good six times here and once very good. When we think about our lives, how often is work complained about and viewed as this wholly negative thing? See, part of that is man's sinfulness. Both our hearts and the hearts of those we work with or work for are sinful. But part of that is a poor understanding of work. But consider this fact. Work existed in paradise. In the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, when everything was perfect and very good, people were working, and it was normal. So for us, that says something. That says that work is good. We need to embrace the fact that work is good and it's a good part of God's design for people. We should, and enjoying our work is perfectly fine and okay. God makes it, he creates it, he says, very good. He does it again, very good. So he sits back and looks at what he made and he says it's very good. So for us, we too should enjoy our work. We should enjoy the act of doing the work. We should also enjoy the finished result of the work. I mean, those are things to celebrate, and it's not wrong to do so. If we work in submission to God and we celebrate those things, we're actually giving honor to God. When you finish cutting your grass, you're cutting your yard, you can sit back and look at it and say, this looks great. And you should do that. When your child finally uses the restroom in the restroom and not in their diaper, you celebrate that. That's an accomplishment. You can, that is good. You can say that. And so we should enjoy our work and enjoy the fruits of it because in doing so, we're honoring God. And we know, this, we know this as kids, but somewhere it's lost along the way. I right, think about your child. When they do any kind of work, they want to enjoy it, and they want you to enjoy it as well. You know, they draw the picture, and they say, man, this is great, and they come give it to you and say, look at this. Look at my picture. They've made something. They have worked. They're, they like it. They want you to like it. They want you to enjoy it. Or think about the student that goes to school and studies hard, and he comes back with this report card and wants to put it in the refrigerator. He's done some work. 
He's, he's, he's enjoying his work, the fruits of his work. He has all eight on a roll. He wants you to enjoy it too. Or even the modern people who, you know, cook their meals and take a picture and post on Instagram. You know, they did some work. They want to enjoy that. Or, or the gym pictures for their, they're sweating everywhere and they got the little pose like that. You know, they just worked out. They did some work and they're, they're enjoying the fruits of that. And that's, that's natural and that's good and that's okay. So we should, work is good and we should enjoy our work. The next thing we can take from this is that work is also purposeful. There's a purpose to our working. Men are called to subdue and exercise dominion over the earth. And that call still exists for us today. Our work is not about just making money or just providing or just occupying our time, but we're fulfilling purposes of God when we work. We're fulfilling, we're subduing, we're exercising dominion. We make things from raw materials into furniture or into pulpits. You know, we're doing that thing. We're creating, we're we're exercising dominion, we're filling the earth. So those things are good. When you train an animal or you raise your child or things like this, you're exercising dominion. So our work isn't this pointless thing we do just to occupy our time, but it has meaning to it. And it also serves God and it serves our fellow man when we work as well. We should think about it that way. How does your work serve others? Everybody's work serves others in some way, so consider that. It's not all about just working, but think about your work as a purposeful thing in your life. And the last thing I want to point out to this is we should view work as an expected and regular part of life. Work is good, work is from God, and God wants us to work. And looking at the Sabbath that God established, we see a regular pattern of work and rest. God worked six days, then he rested from his creative work on the seventh day. And so it says in Exodus 20 and 9 that work should be done in six days, just one day of rest. So this point is that there's an expectation that you are working normally and that you're resting occasionally but regularly. But the dominant factor there is work. Work six days, rest one day. So if we flip that to rest six days, work one day, then we have a problem there. We shouldn't be avoiding work. We should be excited about working. We should be pursuing work, and work should be a regular part of our lives because, after all, there are many things to do in the world and many things God has called us to, and so we can't accomplish any of those without working. So although work is good and allows us to image God and serve others, that's not normally the way we think about work. It seems that our work is always frustrating and burdensome, and we use it for purposes other than to praise God and worship Him. Why is that? That's because we live in a fallen world where work has become corrupted. So we look now at sin's corruption of work so we can understand what to look for and how to guard ourselves against it and not to fall into those things. So please turn me one chapter over to Genesis chapter 3 now, and we'll look at verses 17 through 19. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. And it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it in all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. 
by eating of the tree they were commanded not to eat of. As a result, sin entered the world. So the creation which was once fully good and perfect and pleasing to God had now been corrupted. Through their disobedience, sin brought conse- entered the world and brought consequences to all parts of life. And this included work, of course. And we see this right there in Genesis 3, chapter 17, verses 17 through 19. He says, because of this curse, Adam will now eat of the ground in pain and eat bread by sweat. So the work that was once so pleasant will now be a painful and tiring task. See, while Adam is working the ground and trying to bring forth plants and trees and fruits, he will now have to deal with thorns and thistles. If you're a gardener or outside person, you know that these are horrible, and they stick you, and they get in your way of everything you're trying to do. And so Adam, as a worker of the ground, now has to deal with this reality of thorns and thistles and things that frustrate his work, which previously did not. So us two, we're in the same predicament. We will have frustrating times at work, and we will not always be rewarded directly to the effort we put in, because now we have sin and things have become corrupted. There will be obstacles that stop us from reaping the rewards of our work, and they may be painful. At times, this will make, 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 at times our work will seem unfulfilling or even vain because of so many obstacles, so much pain, so much frustration. Because the ground has been cursed, Adam will now have to work harder just to get the same results previously that he got. He will eat by sweat, it says. And this judgment is finalized in verse 23, where Adam is put out the garden by God. He's sent out of Eden. So although the earth is cursed, and Adam's relationship to God is cursed, and Adam's relationship to the ground is cursed, he still has to work. That doesn't change. And so his call to work is still there, yet it's going to be a struggle for him. And this is the reality of sin in the world. Everything has drastically changed that was part of God's original design. And this is still here today. It's a fallen world we live in, and sin still corrupts. We still face the same challenges as Adam in our work. It will frustrate us, it will challenge us, it will pain us, and it will tire us. But all of our problems are not with work itself. The root really is in our hearts. Because our own sinful tendencies, work is corrupted and used for purposes for which it was not originally designed. It's important for us then, if we want to live faithfully, to understand what these perversions are so we can guard against them and follow God in truth. So I'd like to spend a few moments just looking at three specific perversions of work that are prevalent in our culture so we can identify those and deal with those issues in our own hearts and follow God rightly. And so the first one I want to look at is we work for our own glory, when we work outside of submission to God. And my passage for this is Genesis 11, 1 through 4, which I'll read for you. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So after Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sinned, and sin entered the world, they had kids. And their kids were sinners. Cain and one murdered the other one, and from there sin continued to grow and grow and grow until the earth was purged by God through a flood, and Noah and his offspring were left. 
But even then, after this, sin's still there, of course. So here we are at Babel with Noah's descendants. They're supposed to be filling the earth, but they've decided they're going to centralize on one location instead of doing that. See, they're working diligently. They're making bricks, and they want to build this city and build a tower. And that certainly qualifies as subduing and exercising dominion over the earth. But the question is, what is their motivation here? Verse 4, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So their primary motivation for this work they're doing is themselves. So they receive recognition, so they get honor, so they get glory from others. They get to distinguish themselves from other people. They get to make this, this mark of identity that says, look who we are, we're different than you. So all their motives altogether are ungodly and do not fulfill God's original intent for work. Let us and ourselves are repeated here. Their work is all about them, has nothing to do with God altogether. Their entire endeavor, their whole work is against the will of God. So their, their sinful hearts took a good thing like work that's meant to serve God, and what they have done now is used to serve themselves. They want the praise, they want the glory, they want the recognition, they want to be different than you and not unified together. They seek to make a name for themselves instead of making God's name known. So in the hearts of men that are sinful, our work can easily become an idol and be perverted. So as believers, we have to guard against this tendency. We can't seek our own glory in our work. Our purpose and our desire at all times should be to please God, and all our work should be in submission to God. While it's not a bad idea to excel at your job, and it's not a bad idea to be the best at your job, we want you to do that. We, we affirm that. However, your motivation should not be the recognition and the praise of men and to make yourself more than other people, especially at the expense of giving praise and honor to God. You see, we are all created in the image of God, and you are not more important than the next person just because of your job. You should not be concerned with distinguishing yourself from your neighbor, but actually you should be concerned with serving your neighbor. That is the Christian viewpoint. You should not be concerned with your own status, but God's status overall. So we need to examine our hearts on this. Why do I work so hard? Is it because I'm trying to be faithful to God or because I'm looking for other motives? Or why am I pursuing a certain career? Or what's my motivation here? Are they godly? Are they selfish? Are they prideful? Are we finding our identity in our jobs? Or are we finding our identity in Christ? Why is it important that we live and work in faithfulness to God? See, the problem with this is ultimately separating our faith from our work. When we do that, we fall into these pitfalls. If we can avoid this separation, we realize that our work is not divorced from God, but to be done through God. The next pitfall I want to look at this common is laziness. We all know about laziness, whether we're lazy long-term or short-term, we're all lazy at some point. So it's laziness and passivity. And so Proverbs calls this guy the sluggard. So we'll look at a couple of his clips here. So in Proverbs 6, it says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. From Proverbs 23, 13, the sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I should be killed in the streets. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hand refuses to labor. 
So who is this sluggard? This is the guy that is neglecting work altogether or neglecting areas of his life because he wants nothing to do with it. To him, work is a negative thing. It's troublesome, it's painful, it's to be avoided and not embraced at all. Instead of working regularly, he wants to rest regularly. He's not wanting to get up from his sleep and do anything. He makes excuses for why he can't go outside and work to feel like there's a lion out there. He makes up all kinds of things to avoid working. Now, the lion one probably won't work in Urbana, but I'm sure you've heard some derivative of this excuse. I can't go outside, you know, it's raining, I'm going to melt, or a number of things. But there are excuses to not work and to engage. The proverb says his refusal to work and his desire to rest all the time will lead to his own death and destruction. It's not sustainable, and no one can survive like that. So again, we need to examine our own selves here. Are we slow to work, yet quick to rest and react? Do we put off all our important tasks so we can do leisure tasks? Do we emphasize only the negative things about work and have a view like this guy who just wants nothing to do with it at all? See, the problem of laziness for us is a low view of work. Work is only painful, it's only tiring, it's only negative, and it's a horrible thing altogether. So why would you want to do it in that case? So the solution to this is to embrace that work is good and that work is not this horrible punishment from the Lord or something. So we want to pursue work. And the last thing I'll say briefly is partiality is another one of our big things at work. James calls brothers, says that they're being partial in the church. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man with shabby clothing comes into you, and you pay more attention to the man with fine clothing and say, sit here in the good spot, and the poor man stand over there in the back, he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The issue here is partiality. The issue is because of some earthly status, they have made distinctions amongst each other. They have said who's more important than the other person based on, in this case, their wealth and their money, but in our case, our jobs. Well, this guy's more important because he works at this place, and that person just works at Walmart. This is the issue for us today in our culture, and it's very, very much prevalent in our culture. We give more worth and more value to individuals who have prestigious jobs or who have certain kind of degrees and so on and so forth than the other person. And by doing so, we make distinctions amongst ourselves. We're supposed to be unified in Christ as one body, yet we make these distinctions and separate ourselves from others. This is a large area in our lives, and we need to know that this is a thing for us. We need to evaluate ourselves and to think where our hearts actually are. We're all one in Christ, and all work honors God because it reflects his image. The highest calling for us is to be in Christ, and that should be the highest value that we look at. Something like our job can change overnight. So why do we put so much stock in our job? There was a video I saw online maybe a year or so ago that stuck with me that I thought was pretty funny. So there's two guys coming up, and they haven't seen each other in a while, and they're greeting each other. He said, hey, how's your job doing? What are you doing now? And the first guy says he's an executive marketing promoter for a Fortune 500 company, which sounds amazing. But in the video, you see his phase over, and he's wearing like the chicken suit spitting a sign. You know, so he's basically this guy on the side of the road trying to get you to come inside. So, but he tells his friend he's an executive marketing producer or something to make it sound better. Then the next guy's like, what do you do? He's like, well, I'm an underwater ceramic technician. 
and it shows them like washing dishes. So, and, and it's funny, but it happens in real life. People are not embracing their jobs. They're scared because they think people can pass judgment on them and think they're less than because they do a certain kind of work, because it's so prevalent in our culture. And that should definitely not be the case, especially in the church. If someone is working and making an honest living, we should applaud them, we should embrace that, because they're a brother in Christ, and that's more important than what they do to pay the bills or what they do with their free time. So we need to understand that, and we need to actually walk in love in that way. And so the root of this one, as I've said, is to neglect the dignity of all work. When we don't realize that all work is good, we tend to think that some jobs are better than the others. And we should be very careful with this and how we communicate this. Even for parents, when your kid says, I want to be so-and-so, is the first thing you ask, well, how you can survive? You're not making any money. That says something about what your view of work is. So we want to communicate to our children even that all work is good, and as long as their work is pleasing to God, that should be our first question. How can you serve God and serve others in that job? We should prioritize those things of God and not the things that the culture has said are more important and more distinguishing features. So we don't want to distort God's good gift. But we should all know very clearly that because we live in a sinful world, we at times dishonor God rather than honor him. That we take the good gifts that God has given us and we pervert them, and idolatry is often the result. Something as good as work is perverted and corrupted. So fortunately for us, we're not left in our sinfulness and God's aims to restore all things, including work, to the way they were meant to be. So we talked about God's work as creation earlier, but God's ultimate work is the work of redemption. So when Adam disobeyed God, the whole earth fell into sin. The whole human race fell into sin along with him, and men had no desire for God at all. They wanted to live their own lives as if they were God. But God had a plan of action to to bring all things back together to restore man to himself from the foundation of the world, and that plan involved Christ Jesus. By his great mercy, he sent Jesus to come down to earth. He took on human flesh. He lived a life that was wholly pleasing to God without committing a sin. He then laid down his life for the church. He died so that unbelievers could be saved, so that he could be a substitute for their sin. He paid for that sin, and he was raised by God on the third day, showing that his sin was, his payment for sin was accepted on our behalf. And so because of that, Christ now ascended and reigns with the Father, and Christ is making all things new. He's making all things new in the world. He has made us new as believers already. And so he calls us, because of that, to repent and to believe on him, to turn from our sinful ways to a relationship with him in which we trust his sacrifice for our sins and which we pursue holiness out of a pure heart that he has converted. And see, there's nothing that we can do of our own work to add to Christ's work. Christ's work is complete. Christ's work is final. We are saved by grace through faith, not of our own works. And so this ultimate work of redemption is what we should put our hope in. Christ calls us to follow after him, calls us to believe in him, that he actually accomplished this. And when we do this, we receive salvation. We receive the gift of his Holy Spirit as his people. So have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope for eternal life, or are you trying to save yourself through some kind of work or some kind of other means? I pray that we would all hope in Christ for our salvation. I pray that we would all realize that our work does not add to his work. 
our work is only valuable because of his work. And so, given that Christ has redeemed us and all who trust Christ have been redeemed, we are now transformed in our hearts, in our minds, for the glory of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are now believers, and we can approach work from a new perspective now. We're no longer stuck in that middle point where we're looking at sin's corruption of work. We're now going to something new. And so for our last point, we'll look at Christ's redemption of work. How are we now to think about work as believers who've been redeemed by Christ? And for that, we'll look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Once I get there. <laughs> so Colossians 3, 17. This is what it says. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And let's skip down to 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, bearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So in the book of Colossians, Paul is walking the believers at Colossae through their new life in Christ. In chapters 1 and chapters 2, he speaks of how they were strangers to God and separated from God, but in his mercy he reconciled them through Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he speaks of pursuing God by putting off sinful habits and putting on new godly habits. And so after this, he gives us verse 17 where it says, do all things to the glory of God. Then he expounds that and applies this different context of life, such as marriage and raising kids and so on and so forth. And for us today, the important one is the work. So for our context, we're looking at work here. We want to understand how our redemption in Christ affects our work. So Paul's general command is twofold. Do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. So both our words and actions are to be in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this includes our work, obviously. So the question is, what does that mean to do something in the name of Jesus? Consider now the ancient times where there were knights and rulers and emperors and all those kind of things. And they wanted to expand their kingdom. They would have military personnel. They were under their authority. They would have captains and so on and so forth, generals. If they wanted to acquire some new territory, some new land, they would have this military meeting and talk to their guys with maps on the table and say, I want that. And so once they decided that, the army would suit up. They would go out, and they'd go in this conquest, of course, waving the flags of the, of the ruler or the emperor or the king or whoever he was. And they would go in this conquest, and they would take over the land and at the end of it, they would plant their flag of the king or the emperor in the flag and say, I claim this land in the name of whoever the guy was. And so the idea here is that everything the army has accomplished, everything they have gained, everything they have done was for the emperor. The emperor receives the recognition for doing the task, even though he was probably sitting at home somewhere. So we see that the task and the work is attributed to the ruler of the emperor. It's done in his name. And so everything the soldiers did, from their horse ride to their battle to their conquest, was all done in the name. So for us, when we're supposed to work in the name of the Lord Jesus, it means our work is to be dedicated towards the end of bringing honor and praise and glory to Jesus. The tasks we accomplish while working are to be, based on our conduct, are to be for God. And so Paul also says that we should be giving thanks to God through him as we do all things in his name. So this thankfulness to God is through the work of Christ. 
Because he has now redeemed us and we are actually able to offer our works as a sacrifice to God. Our work is no longer displeasing. It's no longer polluting because through Christ we've been made new. So without the work of Christ, our work is still corrupted, it's still unredeemed, and it's still dishonorable. Because everything that's not a faith is sin, the Bible says. So, but now that we are in Christ and reconciled to God, we can worship God through our work, we can praise God through our work, and we should be thankful to God for the fact that we can work. So Paul then applies this, this, this truth of doing all things to the Lord to the context of work in 22 to 25. And there are three things I want to point out to that of how we can apply this passage for us. So the first thing he called us to is submissive service. He says, obey them in everything. And so as believers, we are to be submissive servants. We are to obey those who have earthly authority over us. And he does say earthly authority. He knows that all authority is ultimately with God, but we are supposed to submit to our earthly authorities. Now, of course, if the earthly authority steps out of line with God, then we don't have to obey because that would be sin. But as long as they're not leading you into sin and you're in their authority, we should submit to them. We should be known as people who are humble and people who are servants. Those are two marks of a Christian, humility and servanthood. And that should be true of our jobs as well. We should be the person that is always humble, the person who is always willing to serve and help others. So Christians should be known as this submissive worker. We should not be known as a rebellious person that's always trying to overrule the boss and never wants to do what they say. That's not a good look for the church. That's not a good look for believers. So if we are to do our jobs well, if we are to do our jobs and do any kind of work to the glory of God, we must be submissive and servant-hearted. The second thing Paul says here is that we are to, we are to serve sincerely. Paul says it's not to be by the way of eye service as, as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. So we, when we are working insincerely, we fall into the eye service and people-pleasing trap. The person that's watching Netflix in the office but occasionally, like, tap some keys to make it look like they're typing. That is eye service. It looks like they're doing something, but they're really not. They're really slacking off. So they're more concerned with looking productive than actually being productive. They're all about appearances. And so, in, in truth, they're practicing deceit. They're making things appear as they are not. And we know inherently that deceit is sinful. The Bible says so. But when it comes to work, we tend to forget some of these things, that deceit is sinful and not honoring to God. Likewise, the people pleaser is more concerned with making others happy than actually doing their job well. This person works harder when other people are looking. Or, you know, when they're getting evaluated, they, they step it up a couple of notches, but normally they don't do that. So it's all about pleasing people. It's all about looking a certain kind of way. It's not really about serving in faithfulness. It's not really about honoring God. But the ultimate authority here is man. Because when man comes, they step it up. But as believers, we know that God is the one who knows all things, our hearts, and sees all things. So why would we think it's appropriate to step it up when some guy comes up? Who, who is he really? So Paul's saying you should serve sincerely at all times and not fluctuate based on men and other things. And then he says that God will reward all people's deeds. So because of that, God should be the ultimate authority and not men. So for us, in our jobs, we should work sincerely. We should be people that are in line with the vision and mission of our job. We should be excited about what we're doing. We should, we should agree with what we're doing. And we should actually be able to be a sincere employee that is actually a part of the team and not someone that just works there as a believer. 
And the last thing he says is that we are called to spiritual service. We are to work with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. We are to work heartily as to the Lord and not to men. We are to recognize and acknowledge that we are serving Christ in all we do because we are his people. When we come to work, whether it's an employment situation or whether we're home or otherwise, we need to approach it as an opportunity to serve the Lord. Paul is saying that our entire life is for the Lord. There are no distinctions. All of life is worship. Because we are in Christ, we've been empowered by the Spirit for service as a means of worship. Our vocation or job is then honoring to God. So as believers, we should be some of the hardest working, faithful, and diligent workers that exist at our workplace. We should be the model employee in all cases because we're not working for men. We're working for God all the time. And so when you consider work, consider that you're serving God. So now we come back to the original question of the sacred secular divide and how we should think about our faith in relation to our work. See, because work is God-given and image is God, when we do work in submission to him, we bring him honor. And, and we are free to pursue any work that, that honors God. So God calls us to fill and subdue and exercise dominion over the earth. We've seen that. And we love all people that do all work. We love our pastors. We love people that work in, in the home, people that work outside the home. All these things are pleasing to God. All these things honor God. And so asking the first question, do we all need to quit our jobs and go into full-time ministry? Well, the, the answer is no. Paul says in Ephesians, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the job of those that are in full-time pastoral ministry is to equip the saints, to equip all believers for the work of ministry. So the ministry is really in our hands. So where do we do this ministry at? We do it in our homes, with our children and our spouses. We do it in our neighborhoods, with our neighbors. We do it at our jobs, by developing relationships, getting to know people, and sharing the gospel, getting to loving them, serving them well. So as we work as to the Lord, as we serve diligently, as we are faithful with our jobs and with our families and with our friends and all these things, we have ample opportunity to serve God through our work, but also to do ministry there too. And we should think about it that way. And so the question is, are we doing this? We should evaluate. And of course we should be doing this. As we share life and as we do life, as we go, we are to make disciples and that includes our jobs at work. Now, of course, I'm not advocating you sneak the gospel into your job presentation, like I mentioned earlier, but I'm saying get to know people, love people, and opportunity will present itself, and it'll be there. We should think about our jobs and all our relationships we have as a context for sharing the gospel and a context for getting to know who people are. And so our ultimate calling is to be faithful to Christ. See, this never changes. That is our primary goal. That's our primary vocation to be a Christian. See, all other things are temporary, and they can change. All other jobs can change. You can lose your job. You can get disbarred if you're a lawyer. You can lose your medical license. You can lose other things, but your highest calling is to serve Christ. So may we be thankful to God for his great gift of work, and maybe work diligently in that, because work is from God and it's for his glory. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time that we spent looking at what the Bible teaches about work, even starting from creation and seeing that you work and that work is good and looking at the fall and how that corrupted work because of sin and how we have 
averted it and made idols, and they're looking at how you, uh, through Christ, have redeemed work, and now our work is an acceptable offering to you, that through our work we can worship you and praise you. Well, we're thankful for that. We've heard a lot today, certainly, and there's a lot to think about, and I pray you help us to think through it. I pray that by your Spirit, uh, we would be convicted of our sin, we would be convicted of how we have fallen short, and we would desire, God, to, to work and honor you uh, at all times. May we be the best we can be, may we work hard, but may we do it all for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.